If you've got one of the church Bibles, we're on page 730, and we're in the whole chapter of Isaiah 44. Hear God's word to you in the 44th chapter of Isaiah. But now, listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim, let him declare, and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people, and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shakes an idol with hammers and forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. The carpenter measures the line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form. Human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a citrus or oak. 
He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, I am warm. See the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know, they know nothing. nothing. They understand, they understand nothing. nothing. Their, their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see, and their, their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one no stops, stops to think. think. No one no has one the has knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even made bread over its coals. I roasted meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing? from what is left. Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath, burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer formed you in the womb. I am the Lord. The maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up the streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, I will accomplish all that I please. He will say in Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid.
Wonderful. Thank you, Sam, so much uh, for reading. My name's Chris Evans. If I haven't met you, um, I'm the assistant pastor here. Um, let me pray for us as uh, we come to hear God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that in speaking wonderfully, you choose to reveal what you are like to us. And you choose to reveal that not just so that we might see you, but that we might know you and enjoy you and treasure you and turn to you and be saved by you. Please help us to taste and see that you are good as we hear from you this morning and to embrace all of those things with the help of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, a, a few weeks ago, um, Sophie and I watched this film called 13 Lives. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you'll have had it being flashed up um, for, for months. Um, it tells the story of the rescue of the Thai boys football team who got stuck in a cave um, during some kind of immense floods about, I think it was 2018, so a number of years ago. Um, they were in this cave for, for a long time before finally um, a diver managed to make it all the way through some water-submerged tunnels to get to them. Um, I can't remember exactly how many kilometers of tunnels, but it's like two and a half, three kilometers of tunnels. It took them about six hours of diving to get all the way through. And after days of waiting in darkness, um, the, the divers arrive and they find some of the boys there, they're, they're all still alive. But when they get there, well, they, they have to leave. It, it's such a big job that they can't do it there and then. They can't take any of them back without preparation. Imagine being one of those boys as you see someone and, and, and they're off they go. So, so off they go, but they give reassurances. We'll, we'll be back. We'll get you out. Well, God's people in Isaiah, uh, they're not stuck in a cave, um, they're not in Thailand, um, but they are stuck in Babylon. Uh, not because of a chance monsoon, but God has sent them there after years of walking away uh, from him. And after more than fair warning, the promised exile, the judgment, it's come. But it's not without hope. A little bit like that advanced party of divers. And God has sent words of reassurance, words of deep comfort all through this section to his people. I will bring an end to your exile. I will pay for your sin. They're, they're, they're two big problems that they're in exile and they need their sin being dealt with. As they live among a foreign people with foreign gods and foreign masters far from home, God has reassured them again and again throughout what we've seen, fear not. We had it a couple of times in our, in our reading in verse 2, do not be afraid Jacob my servant. Or in at verse 8, do not tremble, do not be afraid. He wants them to know he is for them. But when you're in a dire situation like the, the Thai boys or like um, Israel here, when it's really pressing, a, a promise that once felt fresh can begin to go stale quite quick, can't it? You can feel like that promise, it hasn't caught up with reality yet. Come on, when, when's it going to happen? And after long... Maybe they begin to ask the question, would we be better off if we put our trust in someone else? The boys, they're, they're there waiting in the cold and darkness, wondering how they're going to make it back through kilometers of tricky underwater caves. 
Maybe, maybe they should give up. Maybe it's going to be too hard for the diving team. Maybe they're not worth the risk. They're only children after all. Maybe they could uh, figure out a way on their own. I wonder if they start to wonder, practicing holding their breath, you know, do you think I can just hold it long enough to get to the next chamber and, and then we'll deal with the next problem? Maybe we'd be better off trusting someone else. What about God's people? They were in a place of spiritual darkness. Maybe they began to wonder, God, you haven't brought us out of exile yet. Our sin is still so prevalent. Is this rescue ever going to happen? They begin to wonder, would we, be bad, would we be better off if we trusted someone else? Maybe God is unable. You know, Babylon, I mean, they seem pretty strong. They came and defeated Israel. Babylon's got plenty of gods. Maybe, maybe I should try one of those. Maybe that would be worth trying. Well, maybe it's not that he's unable. It's just that he's unwilling. Maybe we have strayed enough from him for too long that he's finally given up on us. Maybe if God's unwilling, we need to try and save ourselves. Well, we in Redeemer Winchester 2022, we're not in Babylon, we're not in a cave. Um, there's something that we can identify with here, though, isn't there? I've looked at it. This sense, God has promised us life to the full, and we know there is this great new creation awaiting us. We've thought about that in our Bible Bible. But, but believing in that promise, believing that that means the best for us now, that can sometimes be hard, can't it? Sometimes that fresh promise can feel a bit stale. Sometimes we wonder, would we be better off in life now if we trusted someone else? Would we have more money, more comfort, better health? Would we feel more secure? Would we be able to bring about change to this world more quickly? Would we see less warfare, greater equality and tolerance? Would we be better if we trusted someone else? What if you've ever asked that? Well, God's answer to Israel, his answer uh, to us, is that there is no one else. There is no one else. All through this section that we're looking at uh, today is the sense that there is only the one true God, that anything and anyone else we trust in is a dead end. Verse 6 to 8 of our passage is sort of the, the heartbeat of, of that. Let me just read it to you and, and feel the wonder of it kind of wash over you. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. That's basically the, the big thing we're just going to dive in and, and look at, at now. I'm going to see uh, two things. I've slightly changed the points from your handout. Apart from the Lord, there is no God. And apart from the Lord, there is no rescue. He is the only God. His is the only rescue. Let's look at the, the first point. Apart from the Lord, there is no God. This is mostly looking at verses 6 to 20. I guess the big question is, why shouldn't they look somewhere else? 
in this central section of our chapter, um, Isaiah sets up a kind of side-by-side contrast of Israel's God and all the other gods. Israel's God in verses 6 to 8 and the idols of the nations in verse 9 to 20. And Isaiah makes this claim. There is none like the Lord, none like Israel's king. This is it again and again. Verse 6, apart from me, there is no God. Verse 7, who then is like me? Verse 8, is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. Now let's be clear that we understand what the claim is. It's not that the Lord is simply the greatest, the most powerful of a bunch of other gods, but that he is totally unique. He is different to them. He can't even be compared to them. When the boys got stuck in the cave in Thailand, there were, there were some different kind of rescue options available. There was the Thai Navy SEALs got called in. Now, they were, they were very experienced at doing diving in, in the sea, but they were struggling because they weren't used to, to dealing with those kind of underwater tunnel conditions. And when they were struggling, they got in some expert search and rescue divers. Now, these different divers, they, they weren't the only divers available, uh, but the search and rescue ones were, were the best ones. Uh, they were a different category of diver. They, they were the best because they had the most experience and skill. But Israel's God isn't one God among many, like the search and rescue divers among a bunch of divers. No, he's not the best because he's the most experienced, because he's got the best CV. And when you kind of look up true gods in the telephone directory, he's not just the top of the list of many with the best kind of Google review. No, there is no list apart from him. He is the only one on it. And to round the point home, Isaiah sets up this side-by-side comparison to show how incomparable the Lord is. And we're just going to look at three things. You've got them on the handout, and they should be at the screen. The first round is that the Lord is uncreated and not created. Do you see in verse 6, the Lord said, I am the first and the last. He's before and after all things. No beginning and no end. Outside of time itself. But it's even more than that. As the only one who has ever been, he is also the source of everything. At the end of our reading in verse 24, we saw, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth. And as the one who is the end of all things, he is the one in whom everything finds its purpose and reason. He is uncreated. But what of the idol? Well, the idol is shaped. It goes through a process of design and construction. Have a look at verse 12. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. And then it needs to be made out of something. Do you see verse 13? He cut down cedars or perhaps a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the forest trees, planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. The idol is created. It's made from stuff. 
and it's made from something that has a beginning and an end. Did you see that the, the, the trees are, are planted and then harvested? Isaiah even points out the irony that it's made from something that can be burnt, that can be used for cooking a mixed grill. What sort of trust can this kind of God have? When we know that in a moment he could be burned up, he has a beginning or an end. If we trust in him one day, he might be gone the next. But a God who is not created, a God who is not part of creation, who isn't subject to change, to decay, to death or fire or tiredness, no, the uncreated one, he can be faithful and trustworthy like no other. The Lord is uncreated, not created. And so as I ask us, would we be better trusting someone else? Let's go to round two. Israel's God we see is self-sufficient, not dependent. And this kind of follows on from the last point, that the God who is the first and the last, who is outside of time, outside of creation, he has no needs. He doesn't need someone to make him or design him. He doesn't need fuel. He doesn't need food. He has no needs because he's existed forever in himself. He doesn't even need to make creation or to save a people. But what about the idol? Well, the idol needs a human, don't they? To have any existence, to have any purpose. The idol has to operate within time and space. It needs those things. The idol, even we're told, needs a house and needs a a design. Verse 13, he shapes it in human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. Did you notice that? The idol, what does the idol look like? It looks like man. You You can dream up what it looks like. God, we're told, is like nothing that we know. The idol needs its worshipper to exist. It's a needy God. Its relationship is one of needing. But why is that so important? Why is it so important that the Lord is self-sufficient? Well, the God who is self-sufficient, well, he hasn't made us, he hasn't saved us because he needs us. He's done it because he wants to know us. His plans, they're his free desires. He's not compelled by anyone or anything. He is after real relationship. He saves us because he wants us, because he loves us. And isn't that precious to know? That God's desire isn't because there is some need that needs to be met. He's not a lonely God in need of a friend, but rather a generous and fully happy God longing to share his divine blessedness. So Isaiah says, think about these two options, a God who is self-sufficient or a God who is small and needy. Would we be better trusting someone else? Third round, Israel's God, the Lord, is sovereign over history, not subject to history. One of the big tests in these chapters as to what is a true God is whether they can tell the future or not. It shows that the God is sovereign over history. 
Uh, verse 7 is like a challenge to all of Babylon's gods. Let him declare and lay before me what's happened since I established my ancient people. Yes, let them foretell what will come. And verse 8, did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? God is confident that he is Lord over everything. We go on to verse 17. God says of the idol, they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. How can they control anything if they cannot see or understand how the world works and in which direction it is going? Isaiah 43 verse 9, just the chapter before says, which of their gods foretold and proclaimed to us the former things? Now because God is not created, because he isn't influenced by his creation, he's self-sufficient, because he's the Lord Almighty, he is able to act on his will. He is able to act out his plans and be sovereign over all of history. And that means we can trust him when everything seems pitch black. He has not stepped off the throne. Isaiah wants us to see, we trust an idol that can do nothing or a God who can control everything. Would we be better off trusting someone else? Well, Isaiah's done a kind of three out of three takedown. Uh, with, with such a devastating job, why would you put your confidence in anything other than the true God? Would they be better off if they trusted someone else? Well, they want to say, no, of course we wouldn't. We want to say, no, of course we wouldn't. Just look at the comparison, it's obvious. But the thing is, it's not always obvious. It's not always obvious for Israel because their experience clouds their view. To them, God feels weak. He's been defeated. They've ended up in Babylon, and that, that feels like their God has lost. It's not always obvious to them, but it's not always obvious to us either, is it? We might not turn to idols made of wood. We might not feel the oppression of Babylon around us in the same way, but in small ways, maybe we can feel like our God is weak or not in control. Why the progressive culture around us? Why the war that never seems to stop? In small ways, we can wonder if he is in control. Maybe someone else might do a better job, or at least give him a helping hand. And I wonder if what we devote our time to, our energy, that might reveal other gods in our lives than the Lord Jesus. It might reveal that sometimes we do think we'd be better off if we trusted in something else or someone else for a better life. Now, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we, we know they're not real, we know they're not living gods, but there is a paradox functionally in day to day. We do sometimes bow down to other things. And that's the great tragedy of sin. In Romans 1.25, Paul says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie worshipped and served created things like the idols we've just listed rather than the creator who is forever praised. Now I can't say what that exchange might look like for each of you but if you find yourself orienting your life around a particular thing 
the pursuit of security in, in money or comfort or health, or maybe the pursuit of a better world purely through some good causes like the environment or, or, or welfare, all good things. If desires for those things control your decisions more than the God of the universe, then it's likely we might be, time to time, putting our trust in those things more than him, that we might be exchanging the creator for his creation. Or maybe it's when you come to make big decisions in life. What is the deciding factor? Is it how much it will cost, how much I'll save, what it will do for my comfort, my health, what impact it will have on the environment? All of those are good questions and part of wise decision-making. But where do they kind of fit in the priority? Maybe we should think first, is this a sinful desire or a godly desire? What, what, are, what am I worshipping in this? Is this a foolish decision or a really wise one? If God overturns what I want to do in this situation, how upset will I be? Or will I be ready to let him lead in his wisdom? When we think maybe we'd be better off trusting someone else, what do we do? Well, the first thing that Isaiah tells um, his people to do after that comparison in verse 21 is this. Verse 21, remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant. I will not forget you. He tells them, remember. Remember that apart from him, there is no God. Remember who your God is. Take heart, those three things that we've seen. Take heart. He doesn't forget the people because he's made his people. He's the creator. And he's chosen them. He's free to do that. He is a self-sufficient God. And he is able to save them because he's the Lord of history. Remember, don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. Years later, Paul would compare idols and the Lord and say that the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Let me read this, 1 Corinthians 8. An idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods, small g, and lords, small l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. Will we be better off trusting someone else? Isaiah says, not a chance. There is no one else. Apart from him, there is no God. And when you're tempted to do so, remember who he is. Remember his character. The old hymn puts it like this. On Christ, this solid rock I stand, all other ground, not just some other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Apart from the Lord, there is no God. But if that's true, and if all other gods are, are false then their rescue must be false too. And that's our, our second point, that there is only one true rescue. Apart from him, there is no rescue. Let's go back to Thailand for a minute. In that cave, um, it was a huge rescue operation. Um, there were various kind of plans that they had to work through, trying to work out which one's actually going to work. Um, some wanted to try putting actual kind of 
tanks and suits on the boys and getting them to do the dive, kind of coached along by a professional. But even the most experienced divers found that really hard. And it became clear that that, 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 that approach would, would lead to no rescue at all. The people who came up with the rescue which worked were those who knew the real problems, who understood uh, what needed to be solved and could come up with what the only possible solution that would be. Um, it's quite astounding that the boys needed to be anaesthetized and put in a suit and strapped up so that they could basically be whisked through like packages underwater. But even then they expected to lose several of the boys. What they needed on this rescue operation was someone who understood the true problem and not just was willing, but able to do it. Isaiah put side by side at the rescue of the true God who knows our real problem with the rescue that any other God might offer. And we're just going to see that one of them is life-giving and the other is life-taking. Firstly, that the Lord's rescue, well, his rescue is life giving. The Lord knew that their problem in Babylon was, was exile, yes, but also sin. They needed a new future away from Babylon back in, in the land, but they also needed new hearts. They needed their problem of sin dealt with. And we see in these verses, he can bring about a rescue from Babylon, a new future, a new world. How? Well, because of the kind of God he is. He's the Lord of history. Verse 26, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. As I was talking of Jerusalem, the city they were taken from, and says those empty streets, they'll be filled again one day. That the Lord can take them home and deliver them from exile. How? Well, verse 28 who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He's the Lord of history. The Lord calls Cyrus, who is king of Persia, he calls him his shepherd here. He is, he is like an instrument. He can use Persia to deal with Babylon, the problem, so that Israel can get back home. The nations to the Lord of history are like putty in his hands. This rescue is a life-giving rescue, a return to Jerusalem, to freedom, to promise, to blessing, to liberty. And this is a picture of the promise that we have too, isn't it? We're described in the New Testament as in our own sort of exile, and we have the hope of a new Jerusalem, the new creation, which only the author of creation could bring about. There's all sorts of ways that we could try and work for a better world now, and so many of those are good things to do. But none of them can ultimately bring it about, can they? Who other than the God of creation could truly renew it? But what we see in Isaiah is that the problem of a new world, the new life that we long for, can only really be brought about by dealing with the heart of the problem. The real problem isn't just Babylon or exile, but it's the sin that took them there. We see God's rescue. It's not just life-giving because it picks them up and puts them somewhere nice to live, but deals with the heart of the problem, deals with our sin, and gives us new hearts. 
We've already confessed our sin uh, together. And, and Johnny read this verse from this passage, verse 22. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. On Monday, um, I went out for that rare activity for me, which is a morning run. Hasn't happened since New Year's Day, so two in a year so far. There was mist all around on the um, St. Cross kind of water meadows. Um, it was just magical, kind of walk out and the sun's kind of shining down, absolutely beautiful. But, but later on, it had gone. And the Lord says, so it will be with your sins. The mist that is there one minute is, is gone. I will sweep it away. Or just the passage just before we, we got to um, uh, where we started this morning, Isaiah 43, verse 25. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. I wonder if you're a fan of thrillers. Um, I love a good thriller. Um, you often see people going through kind of case files of an agent or, or of a criminal or something, and you've got redacted sections that are all in black, all blotted out because they're top secret. Um, and, but the thing is, kind of if they get the right permission, the top secret stuff is still there to be read, isn't it? And you're kind of waiting for the, the, uh, the unadulterated file. It's a bit like that here, but God says, no, this isn't a top secret file. These things that are blotted out, there's, there's no kind of higher place to read. They're just gone. You can't find out that information anymore. He says he remembers your sins no more. God's rescue is life giving. But how can something so serious as our sin, which is deserving of God's wrath, be dealt with so fully? Well, we'll see that more when we get uh, a little bit further on Isaiah 53 in a few weeks' time. But the promise of a life-giving rescue here is one that we see most fully laid out in the Lord Jesus. He's the one who deals with our heart problem by blotting out our sin. He can do that by dying in our place, by facing our judgment and by paying for it so that our sins are remembered no more. But Jesus too is the one who can bring justice to the ends of the earth when he returns to make all things new. What we see here is a rescue that is life-giving, a new life, a new world with sin removed. What a precious thing. But did you notice how does God's life-giving rescue come to us? All through here we see it is a gift of grace. I wonder if you spotted um, in chapter, verse 1, we see they are formed. I oh, know, verse 20, 21, I formed you, I made you. We see, verse 21, that they are chosen by him and they are saved by him even in their sin. And then in verses 1 to 5, as Sam was reading, this picture of flourishing of a somewhere dry and becoming filled with water and things growing up until the Lord pours his spirit out on his people and they say, I belong to the Lord. They flourish and grow. All of these things are his initiative, his work, a gift of grace. And he can do that because of the kind of rescuer he is. Before Israel can come to God, he has to come to them. And that's the same for us. Before we come to Jesus, he has to reach out for us. In that cave where the boys were waiting, and they actually found a kind of dent in the wall where they tried to kind of scratch their own way out, tried to scrape a tunnel. Those boys could do nothing. 
nothing to get themselves out. Their only hope was to trust in a rescue from outside. They had to even be put to sleep and transported through those tunnels. It all happened to them. They just had to put their trust in the rescuer. Well, Jesus deals with something bigger than a cave. He deals with our our sin as we thought through. And he takes us not just through a cave, but through death itself. And we have to completely trust in him to do that. Would we be better off trusting in someone else? We might see fleeting benefits, but no other rescuer will give life like him. Let's have a look at the other option where we see that any other rescuer actually takes life rather than gives it. We had that amazing, powerful description of um, the maker of the idols. And just flick your way down from verse 9 through to 20, and we see what is the impact that this other god has on him? What kind of rescue does he give? Well, he drains his energy. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drains his time. He drains him of creativity and resources. And eventually... This idol deludes his heart. Verse 8, verse 20. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. And it leaves him believing in a lie. Nothing in creation can save. So this man is left holding his problems. He still needs a new world and a new heart. He still has the problem of sin. But even worse, he doesn't realize it. He's blind to it. Verse 18 Their minds are so closed they cannot understand. Like someone riddled with a deadly disease who doesn't know it. Instead of giving him what he asked for in verse 17, which is, save me, you are my God, this idol worshiper has become enslaved to it. It's not a rescue. It's a captivity. Instead of giving him life, it has sucked the life out of him. Superhero films have kind of been the rage for a while, haven't they? And um, there's a bit of a repeating theme in some of the villains. They're ones that kind of absorb energy that you get kind of fired at them, and they just get stronger every time you, you punch them or they have a missile fired at them. It just gets bigger and bigger the more you feed it. And it's a little bit like that here. The idols of money, comfort, health, they, they, whatever they might be, other things, they have power over us only the more and more we feed them. As we see this comparison of of rescues, one that gives life, one that takes life, we see that the quality of rescue depends on the quality of the rescuer. Remember that the contrast of gods that we had? We can trace exact lines to the kind of rescue that they give. So when we think we'd be better off for trusting someone else for a happy life, for security, comfort, for transformation, Isaiah has us asked, well, what kind of rescue will they give you? Will they give life, or will they eventually take life? And the second big take-home he gives his people after this whole section, we saw that word remember in verse 21, is in verse 22, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Don't look for rescue elsewhere. Return to me and find redemption, a full rescue. If you're trusting somewhere else this morning, return to him, return to the Lord Jesus. We've confessed our sin. Know the joy of forgiveness. Know the freedom from sin. Know the joy of a clean 
conscience that the Lord in Jesus redeems us, that his rescue gives life. Any other will take it. So we've seen that apart from the Lord, there is no God, and apart from him, there is no rescue. Do we ask, are we better off trusting something else, someone else? Well, if we are, let's hang on to those two things. Remember who our God is. And secondly, return to our Redeemer, the one who loves us and the one who has given himself for us, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's take a moment and then pray. Heavenly Father, there is no other rock like you. You are uncreated, you are self-sufficient, you are Lord of history, unchanging. Lord, we, we cannot sum up enough words to declare your majesty and your greatness. And yet we confess that so easily, we do find it easy to look elsewhere for hope, for comfort, for refuge. Lord, help us to remember who you are. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that your rescue is a life-giving rescue. Life-giving for the future, the joy of the new creation that we are waiting for. But life-giving now as your spirit works within us, as we say, I belong to the Lord. And as we come to know and enjoy the fullness of all that means. Lord, please help us in those moments this week where we are tempted to give our worship to something other than you where we are tempted to have the life drained out of us. May we see the goodness and the greatness of the Lord Jesus afresh. And would you help us to remember and return to you, our great Redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.